0: is either a day of great joy or it is a day of great mourning and hanging one's heads and cries of dereliction. There's no way that today is going to be a win for our country. Um, For those of you that are watching this from outside America, today is election day. If you're on social media, you already know this, I'm sure. But I wanted to use today's dojo discussions to talk about uh, the election and not just this election, but the way we Christians can approach politics in general. This is something that a lot of Christians wrestle with. Okay, so if you've seen, if you've been active on social media, which I am very active, the ministry of Disciple Dojo, so all the things I post and share on my Facebook page and on the Disciple Dojo page, all of those are for the purpose of making people, it's like sparring in a dojo. You go there to get better. You share your thoughts, you share your techniques, you share your concepts, and then you have somebody challenge you. And they're going to try to attack you. You're going to try to attack them. And you're going to shake hands and hug at the end because you made each other better. But in the meantime, you're really trying to sink in that choke or that arm bar or that foot lock or that wrist lock. And that's kind of how healthy political social discourse should be. I say should because it's not the case. That's not how it is. Most people hate talking about politics on social media. They loathe it. They'd rather do anything than talk about politics on social media. Why? Because social media is like basically walking down Central Part no, not Central Park, walking down Times Square with a bunch of people on little uh, soapboxes screaming out their opinions at everybody. That's what social media is like for a lot of people. Or it's everybody screaming one opinion because you've blocked all the people who have different opinions from you. And that creates these two Americas that we live in, where people your news feed is filled only with right wing talking points, or your news feed feed is filled only with left wing talking points, and so you have this country that gets divided in the middle, uh, and there's people who are like, well, I don't fit on either side very neatly, but they uh, so they just feel like nomads, like uh, outcasts, and so they just choose not to engage. So. I don't believe that's healthy for a country. I don't believe that's healthy for a Christian. I think not talking about political issues and not talking about social issues is actually one of the problems with our culture. Um, the other problem is not talking about them, but talking at people about them. And there's a difference uh, in those two things. What you see a lot of what we live in is a society of echo chambers where people only listen to voices that they agree with. So what I try to do on my social media is uh, make sure that I'm following people. In other words, who you follow is who pops up on your feed. And I don't use social media for like sharing birthday pictures or looking at kids' babies or weddings or that kind of stuff that a lot of people use it for. It's great if that's what you use it for. Uh, I know, Mom, that's what you use it for, right? I know this. And and that's how it should be for people – But for people who want to engage the culture, social media is a powerful tool to be able to do that. But it's also like any powerful tool, it can be abused. It's dangerous. And so if we look at it with a little more responsibility and we see that what what we're doing on social media is the equivalent of walking into a crowded marketplace and just shouting out something, then that will hopefully make us a little more reticent or I should say a little more intentional. About what it is we're shouting out, I think a lot of social media is not intentional. I think people just see it as well, only my friends are going to see this, so they fire off a rant and then people like it and share it, and if it's not uh, private, then it can go anywhere and and then whether depending on what the content of it is, it can either get people adoration or it can get people condemnation and this is all this is all something to be aware of as Christians, especially Christians, we should have no problem. With every single word we ever write, type, post, meme, text, email, anything we ever say or do, we should have no problem with someone 20, 30, 40 years from now digging it up and sharing it with the world. Why? Because that's going to happen on Judgment Day. We believe that every word we utter we'll have to give an account for And when all is said and done, the books will be laid open and the records will be set out and everyone will see at the final judgment what everyone, in other words, nothing will be left hidden. So we should already, as Christians living in the kingdom, we should already be living that way now. Now, of course, if we make mistakes, if we do something stupid, like I've got bonehead stuff I did in my past. I've got dumb stuff I did in high school and college you know, it was before social media, but there are still vestiges in old pictures or uh, VHS tapes or whatever that, that could one day pop up. I mean, nothing horrendous, you know, but some pretty stupid tasteless or stuff that I thought at the time was funny because I'm a moron teenager. Uh, that's just not funny anymore. And and stuff that I have been like, oh, that's terrible. What was I thinking? But we all have that. Okay, that's That's different. What I'm talking about is in this age of online, we have to act as if every single word we will ever put out there will be publicly and universally visible. And that's a great way to keep ourselves in check. If we're going to post something, whenever I think about posting something, I try not to do it when I'm fired up or angry. Every now and then I will, but even then I try to give some serious thought to it if i post stuff and i believe in posting stuff that's provocative not for the sake of just being provocative but to stir people to respond back i believe that's a good thing and and so anything that i do post that's if it may be provocative it may be controversial it's intentional it wasn't done haphazardly and i'm always i try to be very careful with my words what i say that's why in speaking live sometimes you'll see me pause for a little bit because i'm trying to say exactly what i want to say I don't want people to hear what I'm not saying. I want them to hear what I'm trying to say, which nobody can be perfect at that. But regardless, whenever you go to post something, you should always stop and ask yourself, am I okay with every single person on earth reading this? Am I okay with every person I know, every family member, every friend, every acquaintance, every potential boss? Am I okay with them reading this, having no context, not knowing me as a person, just this, it's called your social media footprint. It's just what's out there. And you should ask yourself, we should ask ourselves before we ever post anything, am I okay if this got blasted on CNN? Is this saying what I want to say in the way that I want to say it as best I know how? Does it mean we'll be perfect? No. I've had things I've shared, I posted, I thought one thing, I got some pushback from people, I had people challenge me, and guess what? I changed my mind. They actually convinced me. And so I went back and posted an apology, or posted an edit, or a correction. I didn't erase what I'd written, because I I want to leave a record for people to see. But I went back and said, this was a good point. I didn't think about this, and actually, let me modify what I think now. In light of this. That's how it should work. That's that's what learning should be. That's what sharing should be. That's what social media discourse should be. Should be, not is. And so I want to encourage Christians, if you're catching this, if you're watching this, um, don't be silent if there's something that you want to talk about or you want to learn about or you want to share about. But when you do speak, It should go without saying, but don't be a jerk. Just don't be a jerk. If you're going to be intentionally provocative, if you're going to stir the pot, if you're going to do those things, at least do it cleverly. Do it in a way that makes people think, not just in a way that makes people react. And be willing to have a follow-up. One of my pet peeves, I need to be like in a car with a cowboy hat on or something and ranting Uh, because that's what those rant videos are for some reason. One of my pet peeves is when people will post something that's obviously controversial, whether it's right-wing, left-wing, whether it's Christian, whether it's atheist, whatever it is, like usually it's a meme or something, and they'll post it on a public post on their social media. And then when somebody pushes back, when somebody responds and says, I think that's crap, I think you're wrong, I think this is a garbage meme, I disagree completely, whatever, then the person says, I'm not going to debate it. I don't have time to listen to this. I'm not changing my mind, blah, blah, blah. And then they just shut off discussion. I've had that happen a couple of times. And it's such a mark of intellectual and spiritual immaturity. It's such a mark of cowardice. If you're going to shout something into the ether, then be willing to have people shout back at you. If you're not willing to have people shout back at you, stop shouting, share stuff, Ask questions, put it out there. Hey, I, this is how I feel about this. Should, am I missing something? Am I wrong on this? What do you think? That's great. But the people that post the dogmatic, and it's usually the, it's the super right wing MAGA crowd or the far left cancel culture identity politics crowd. It's rarely a thoughtful, level headed concept that somebody just puts out there and says, I'm not going to talk about it. This is what's right. Usually you get that from the fringes. So, especially as Christians, but as people in general, even if you're not a Christian, we should be better than that. We should elevate that. Doesn't mean we'll be perfect. We may mess up. We may rub somebody the wrong way, especially if it's something that we're passionate about. If it's something I'm passionate about, I'm going to push back a lot harder and more intently than if it's something I'm not super passionate about, that I care about, but I'm not like invested in. That's normal, though. That's how it should be. If you have an area of expertise or if you have an area of of passion and and calling and a heart burden for something, that should be what fires you up. Um, Some people just like to get fired up over anything. Some people are just argumentative. I have some people on my Facebook feed. I can post anything, and they'll chime in just to argue the opposite. They're contrarians. I don't think they're bad people. I think they just enjoy that back and forth. That that push and that pull and and that can be helpful sometimes. Other times it can just be draining and annoying, uh, especially if it's something that really there's no need to push back on that strongly. Um, it's not like a life defining issue. But anyway, that's all a judgment call, and there's no one size fits all. Uh, but today especially, we are we're a divided country. Newsflash. Uh, actually, don't news flash. Just don't watch the news. Cable news. Let me go on a soapbox for a minute here again, back in the car with my cowboy hat on. I think one of the worst things that happened to our country is when journalism became enmeshed with advertising. I think once journalism became based on, overtly based on selling ad space, uh, our our entire the entire concept of journalism took a major hit. Um, I I think cable news is one of the worst things ever invented across the board. I, I think there is almost no redeeming quality to cable news because it's not information. It's infotainment. It is contrived and crafted specifically to do a certain thing with people emotionally. And it's not to give people information so they can make up their own minds. Yes, I'm talking about CNN. Yes, I'm talking about Fox News, but I'm also talking about the lesser things, the Daily Wire and the Breitbart and the Salon.com and, um, you know, all of these other pseudo-journalistic, basically just op-ed partisan things. And so it's not like they should be avoided because they are background noise in the culture, but man, we should never base our opinions on something that we've seen on one news outlet. We may see something on one news outlet, and that may lead us to look into it more to see if how that news outlet portrayed it was right. You know, there's been times where, like, okay, i use Solana as an example. It's the most left-wing, shrill of not—it's it, basically a walking Portlandia skit in terms of its reader base. But every now and then they publish something that I read and I know about that issue, and I'm like, actually, actually a really good take on this. Well done. And so does Ben Shapiro and Daily Wire. Every now and then they'll put out something that's like, you know what, that's a really thoughtful, well-crafted argument worth listening to. The problem is they've been pumping out so much rhetorical sewage for so long that nobody wants to listen to what they're saying. And they immediately get discounted because they've been crying wolf so much. So that's the problem when when these when, when cable news outlets or, or media outlets share stuff is their reputation is so in the gutter with everyone who's not drunk their particular brand of Kool-Aid that no one will listen to them. And that's a problem. So what I have to do, like when I share something, if there's a story that's covered by Fox News, Daily Wire, uh, Breitbart, uh, Salon, um, I'm trying to think of other, I mean, they're out there. Pick your own right wing or left wing. When I find something that's shared by one of those, what I try to do is look for the link in it, go to that original link to whatever originally reported it, and share that thing when I'm going to share something on social media. Because I want to discuss. Like, I want us to be able to discuss something. If Fox News is talking about it or CNN is talking about it or whoever is talking and it's worth discussing, I want it to be discussed. But it's just like my little anti-guerrilla marketing way of taking clicks away from those things and giving it back to the original sources. So if something happens in another country that a news outlet reports and Daily Wire just picks it up or, or Salon just picks it up and recounts it with a little editorial spin from their right or left wing uh, uh, pundit, I want to go back to that thing they picked up. I want to share that on my feed and say, Hey, what do you guys think about this? Or let's talk about this because then it bypasses the the needless op-ed from the talking heads who are paid based on clicks. Um, and this is in the Christian world too. This happens in theological circles. This happens in, I have, I have people I know or were friends with at one point who have just become full on clickbait bloggers and their entire raison d'etre is to just put stuff out there that people will hopefully share and and will trend and and it really it's sad because there can be good thoughts that even people like that have worth sharing but because that's what they're doing innately I'm like I'm not going to share I'm not going to contribute to the clickbaitiness It would be like if the Kardashians said something profound on an episode of their show. I'm not going to tell people, go watch their show, because there's this profound thing that they... No, no, I don't want to contribute to that uh, part of what's destroying our culture. I just use that as a lighthearted example. I don't hate the Kardashians. I hate the brand, the Kardashians, but I don't hate the people. Uh, The brand, yes, but that's another... Maybe that'll be a good dojo discussion sometime branding versus individuals when it comes to celebrity Um, chime in if you ever want to talk about that we could do a whole session on it but right now our country is deciding people are voting most a lot of people have voted already our country is deciding on election not just president but also all these other elections and people on both sides have been throwing around bible verses and scripture so i have evangelical friends good evangelical friends colleagues People who I deeply, deeply respect who are on the Trump train and they don't like Trump. They kind of get embarrassed by him, but they like a lot of the decisions he's made in the areas that they're passionate about. And the decisions he's made that they don't agree with, they just kind of downplay those because the things that they care about, they're like, he's love him or hate him, he's doing stuff that helps. Fill in the blank. And I can I have respect for them. I have respect for friends, evangelical, Bible-believing voter friends that have done the same thing with Biden and Harris. They go, they overlook the bad things that they've done, and, and Biden and Harris have done horrible things. They just don't get plastered on every news story like the horrible things Trump does. But so most people they go under the radar. But I have friends that are like, but look, the things that I care about. Trump has done terrible at and his personality is awful and he's a national embarrassment. I don't want to ever have to stand before God and say, I supported that man. And so they're voting for Harris. And what are they doing with the things that uh, Biden and Harris, what are they doing with the things that Biden and Harris stand for that they're against? They have to do a little rhetorical maneuvering to downplay those things. So Biden and Harris' horrendous record on abortion, for instance. Evangelicals have to go yeah, but these other things can help bring down abortions. Like, they have to push that aside. I get it. I understand it completely. Because Trump supporters have to do the same thing on his rampant nationalism and his borderline racism. They they have to push aside his tone-deaf statements, and not to mention how what he's done and said about women over his career. They have to push those things aside and say, yeah, but... I like what's going on here. And I can support this. And you see those op-eds. You can see them. Christianity Today is a great resource. You guys should be subscribed or following Christianity Today because they are solidly evangelical in the historical sense of the word. And they published, I was actually really impressed. Well, I wasn't impressed because it's what I expect from CT. I've been a subscriber for 20 years. They published a piece pro-Trump that says why Christians should support Trump. And then they post a piece Pro Biden, and where the author said why Christians should support Biden, and what warmed my heart is they posted a third piece that said why Christians should not support either and should vote for a third party, which cards on the table. If you follow me for social media for any amount of time, you know I am staunchly and a hundred percent on board the third party movement, um, and I'll say why in just a second. But That was a good thing that CT did because what CT uh, did in doing that was they let readers hear from people who actually hold the views why they are doing what they're doing within evangelical Christianity. And I say evangelical loosely because Paula White was the one that wrote the pro-Trump piece. It would have been better, I think, had they gotten an actual evangelical instead of a uh, uh, prosperity heresy teacher, Um, But which... That's what she is, and we can definitely have that discussion in another episode. Uh, regardless, though, they at least let a rabid supporter speak for each position, and they gave a voice to a third party, which most things never do. So these were all good things that, that Christianity Today did. I was happy and proud to see, and we need more of that. We need, the problem is not that we talk about politics too much. The problem is we talk about politics poorly. The problem is not that we talk about social issues too much. It's that we talk about them poorly because we don't talk about them. We talk at people. We shout at one another across the line rather than actually listening. And this is one of the reasons that I actually like the fact that long form discussion is coming back into the public consciousness through podcasting. Uh, The number like I think it's still number one. If it's not number one, it's in the top two or three podcasts out there of all, is Joe Rogan's podcast. And if you don't listen, Joe Rogan basically sits down and has a two- to four-hour conversation with one or two or three people, but usually it's one, and they just talk. There's no script. There's no talking points. There's just discussion. Some of the guests he has on are amazing, Shout out to a friend of mine, Justin Wren. He's been on there like five times and what he's doing in the Congo with his work through Fight for the Forgotten. Uh, Some of them are political candidates. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard, the the Democrat I would have voted for had they nominated her. She was on there, had a great discussion. Some are cultural critics or pundits. Some are um, independent thinkers who are kind of public intellectuals. And Jordan Peterson's been on there a few times. But then sometimes he has crazy people legit crazy people like he has Alex Jones on there who's a moron um that's his shtick that's his character he is a moron he has um you know people that'll talk about Jesus and the apostles were doing uh, hallucinogenic drugs and 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 have written a book about it or just something that's completely ridiculous but that's actually why people tune in because because he'll just sit there and talk to these people and be like tell me wait what tell me what you think why do you think that and they go back and forth and and he He's good about trying to find common ground sometimes, but he's also good about pushing back when he disagrees. Not perfect, but, you know, definitely better than anything going on in cable mainstream media. But that's a lost art. That's a lost art in our culture of being able to sit and listen to a long-form discussion instead of these quick social media jump-cut sound bites that we're used to that we've had for 40 years now. So I want to do everything I can to push in that direction to push away from the short attention span stuff the soundbite the bumper sticker slogans to more rigorous engagement with the people who are able to do that so i'm glad to see podcasting on the rise i'm glad to see things like this i don't even you know i see a couple of you that are online tuning in i appreciate it hopefully others will catch it when it's um, shared later as well but but that's something we should wholeheartedly embrace and not just embrace it we should demand it From journalists and media, more so media than journalists. Journalists are responsible for just presenting facts and finding facts and uncovering facts. Uh, Media is responsible for spinning those facts. And so um, never confuse journalists and pundits. Never, ever confuse. Sean Hannity is not a journalist. He's a pundit. Rachel Maddow is not a journalist. She's a pundit. Anybody that gets paid to tell you their opinion is not a journalist. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily wrong. They're just It's not journalism. So make sure you, that we always keep that in mind, being discerning. This election, I mentioned before why I voted third party. And I wanna, I've written a blog post on it that you can check out. But some people, every four years, as a third party voter, every four years, I encourage people, look. Unless you are super on board with one of these two candidates, unless you're just like, that's my guy, I'm with her, and you passionately believe in this person, like you actively believe in this person, not just, well, this is, I like their policies better. I I always tell people, unless you are actively comfortable cheering for and rooting for and supporting one of the two candidates, which... Three quarters of the country, actually, probably more, aren't. Then, vote third party. Like, actually, go into the booth in your state, find a third party on the ballot that you agree with, or at least don't disagree with as much as the other two, and give them your vote. Why is that not a wasted vote? I hear this every four years. It's a wasted vote. It's a wasted vote. Um, one, that's just a selfish statement. When somebody says your your vote is wasted if you vote for someone other than one of the two main candidates, that's a selfish statement. They're saying your opinion doesn't matter, that you they, they are putting something on you, they're assigning motives to you, and and they're also saying your conscience doesn't matter, which we know from Scripture, your conscience is the thing that matters most. If it's on an issue where God hasn't given clear guidance, then the umpire in that decision, the, the referee in the instance where God says, here's choices you can make, and I haven't, prohibited either of these choices. I'm allowing you to choose. If we're torn, the umpire, the decision should rest with our conscience. We should never go against our conscience on issues where we're unsure and, and God hasn't said something clear. And so when you tell somebody not to vote their conscience, but to vote strategically is it's super selfish. You're basically saying my political strategy is more valid than yours. So you need to vote how I think you should vote. It's just, it's a terrible um, imposition of your values on somebody else. But the other reason is because people think that every election, the goal is to win. That, that, that's all that matters is winning the election. The problem is no one vote can win an election one way or the other. So it's silly to try to be strategic with your vote because your vote is not going to do anything other than possibly give a little nudge in one direction or the other. So what I tell people is if you don't like either candidate and you're tired of having to choose between these type of candidates, then use your little vote to nudge the whole thing in a different direction. Use your little vote to be a way of saying this whole system is, is wrong and I don't want to participate in it. I want to help get us in another direction. And so for me, I recommend people doing that. We had a little glitch there in mid-thought. Hopefully we're back. The whole point of using your vote is to nudge people, nudge the whole system in a different direction. So what I tell people to do for me is I say, listen, you've got a little bit of influence with your vote. Use it to push the country in a direction you'd rather the country go. If you're tired of having to choose between drinking bleach or drinking Drano, they're both going to kill you. They're both neither you want to drink. Don't try to do the math on which one is less poisonous. Don't try to do the math on which one is less toxic. Just say, Hey, I'm going to drink either of these and choose something else. Every state has another option on the ballot, every state. So unless that third option is worse than those two, why not use your little voice you have to just push the country in a different direction? So that's why I vote for a third party. If a third party gets 5% of the vote, that qualifies them for future funding and major party status, and that has a ripple effect down the road. This election it was never for me personally, if I was never gonna vote for the Republican candidate. I, I can't my conscience won't let me vote for Donald Trump. I like some of what he's done, but I despise a lot of what he's done. So I'll give him credit where credit's due. He's done some good stuff, but he's done some horrendous stuff. That I could never support. So my conscience is Trump's a non-starter. During the Democratic primaries, I was watching them, and the only candidate of all of them that I could, in good conscience support was Tulsi Gabbard. She was the only one who seemed level-headed. She was the only one who seemed truly to want to reach across the aisle, uh, and most importantly for me, in the presidential election, her foreign policy was sound and solid. And that's what I look for in presidential election over any other issue, other abortion, over Supreme Court appointments, over anything I look at foreign policy because that is the number one job of the commander in chief. And that is the thing where he or she has the most direct influence. All the other stuff has to go through Congress. Uh, all the social changes, all the economic concept, all, the, all that kind of stuff, it has to go through Congress. So it's, it's not, to, as directly applicable to for me to a presidential election. And that's a position where I've changed over the years. I used to have much more focused views on how I would vote for somebody as president, but within the past decade, uh, decade and a half, that shifted. And so now foreign policy, that's the number one thing I look at in terms of a president. For other officials, especially senators and congressmen, I look at things like, are they Do they embrace human life? If they're pro-choice, how do they qualify that pro-choice? Are they extreme pro-choice like the Democratic Party or are they a more moderate, which I don't love, but it's better than being what Democratic Party currently is. So I weigh those things about candidates in non-presidential elections. And then in local elections, I have friends who are heavily involved in local politics, who every election, I always message and say, hey, who are some names I need to know about? Who are some people that, you, that stand out to you? These are people I respect. We, I don't always vote the way they vote. I don't agree with them on every issue, but I know that they're heavily invested in local politics, and they have a pretty good BS meter, and they will sniff out, and they will give good recommendations for me because I, we, nobody has time to be able to explore every election and every office. And if I don't know something about a candidate, like if I go into the ballot box, there's a lot of downcard races that if I don't know anything about the race and there's not a third party option, if I don't know anything and there's a third party option, I want third parties to rise in this country. I hate the duopoly. I hate having to pick between Republicans and Democrats. I wish a pox on both houses. And the sooner Republicans and Democrats crumble, the happier I'll be. But. If there's a third party option, I'm going to vote that way. But if there's not, which there's not on a lot of races, then what I have to do is I, I don't vote and I, because I'm not going to unwittingly give my vote to somebody just because they're an R or a D uh, unless it's something that I know a little bit about them or at least where they stand or, or something like that. So as you're voting, um, not just in this election today, if you haven't voted yet, but in any election. State, local, federal, as you're voting, try to think about these kinds of things rather than just not caring. Because that's how we get here. That's how you get Trump and Hillary. And that's how you get Trump and Biden is by people not caring. And so we end up with two elections in a row with the two worst candidates in human history. That's being a little hyperbolic, but two candidates who I would never in a million years choose either of them. That's how we end up that way is by this duopoly that we're locked in because people will not give their support to other parties that are trying to change things. For me, I lean libertarian. I think libertarianism is the closest political party to the golden rule. I don't think it's perfect. I'm not a capital L libertarian. I'm not a member of the libertarian party. I roll my eyes at libertarians a lot of times. But it's it's probably where I land closer, certainly closer than Democrats and Republican. Um, but there are other parties: American Solidarity Party, Constitution Party, the Green Party. There are other options, and so I want to encourage: if you haven't looked into those, do it. Look into if unless you're happy. If you're happy with choosing between bleach and Drano, and what to drink every four years then keep doing you. But if you're like the majority of Americans who are tired of being presented with this situation, then demand better. Ask for better. I want to shift gears because we're going to wrap it up in just a second. I want to shift gears and talk about big picture political concepts that should always affect how we, not just how we vote, but how we live how we interact. So we've talked about social media interaction on socio political issues. We've talked about voting. Um, I also wanna talk about our worldview, how we view things in the realm of politics, because that's so important. And a biblical worldview is, is sorely lacking among many Christians in America and elsewhere in the world, but I speak as an American. I can't speak to uh, Christians in other countries. The, the, the biggest thing I see lacking from my perspective as a Bible teacher is an appreciation for just how anti-nationalistic the Bible is. Anti-nationalistic. What I mean by that is we in America have assumed for decades that America is God's instrument in the world. That America is, God shed His grace on thee, right? We sing this in our songs, uh, from sea to shining sea, and we have just implicitly assumed that when the Bible speaks of leaders and rulers to show authority and respect and to you know to be good citizens under, we just kind of transfer that to America, and so you'll have churches doing things like saying prayers that the Bible said were for the king of Israel and you'll have people saying those prayers but directing them at whoever's in the white house as if whoever's in the white house is in any way analogous to the king of Israel Christians Israel has a king it's not Donald Trump it's not Joe Biden Israel has a king. It's not even Bibi Netanyahu. According to the Bible, Israel's king is Yeshua, Ben Yosef, Ben ben David. Israel's king is Jesus, he's the king of Israel. So all of the prayers about the king or thoughts about the king or concepts about the king from the Hebrew Bible, we cannot transfer those to any politician in any worldly office on this earth because Jesus is the king. Jesus Christ, that literally means Jesus the Messiah, which literally means Jesus the anointed one and anointed one was the title of the king of Israel. So if you are a Christian, if you're not a Christian, you can, you don't, I'm not holding you to this. This is just what we believe. If you don't believe this, no problem. Uh, you, you, whatever you believe, I'm just giving you, I'm pulling back the curtain and letting you see what the Bible teaches for Christians to believe. That Jesus is the king of Israel. So when we read scripture, Jesus is Israel's king. What's his kingdom like? He said what his kingdom's like. My kingdom is not of this world. Don't you think I could call on my father and he would send legions of angels to rescue me? Jesus's kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is king. There are no others. So theologically speaking, so in terms of honor and, and, and allegiance and all of that that we give, it, there should be no question for Christians, our kingdom is not of this world. So our nationality is, is so far down the list of who our identity is. There's a movement, I've seen a few of these popping up like mushrooms, and I use that because both are fungus, uh, of nationalistic churches. That is a flat-out idolatrous abomination. To wed the gospel of Jesus with the American flag, to, to, to put the Lamb of God in the same realm as the eagle of America, is flat out idolatry and Christians we have to stand against that it doesn't mean that we have to attack any nation it doesn't mean that we have to be Christian anarchists although some of you watching this probably are it doesn't mean that we have to be like the Amish and not vote and not pay taxes and not do any. it doesn't mean any of that what it means is we have to keep our allegiance thoroughly separated and our allegiance goes to jesus the king of kings our respect can go to earthly rulers earthly countries earthly nations our love can be for our homeland for our people groups for our compatriots for whatever fine but our allegiance is to jesus this is this is an issue i've actually changed on over the years i grew up saying the pledge of allegiance um, I I don't say the Pledge of Allegiance anymore. And, it, and if I ever have kids, I'm, I'm going to talk to them about what allegiance means and how for followers of Jesus, we can honor and respect the sacrifice people have made for the sake of others. We can show uh, honor. We can show respect. We can show appreciation for our country and in, in, in so many different ways, but we can never give allegiance to any Thing other than God especially not a flag I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands I don't pledge allegiance to any republic I don't pledge allegiance to any flag I respect I appreciate I be uh, I'm a good citizen I pay taxes I vote I enter into the public discourse I believe in doing good for people. I believe in reaching across partisan lines. I believe in serving your community, your country, your state. Yeah, I'm on board with all that, but I will never pledge allegiance to something anymore. That's something I've changed on. Now, if you do say the pledge of allegiance, I'm not condemning you for it. I'm just giving the reasons why I don't. You may have reasons why you do. You may have never thought of it, but I thought of it And spent time thinking on it and searched and read scripture and and really considered it And in good conscience. It's something that I can't do. It's just an example of how our political worldview and our biblical worldview sometimes may find themselves at odds. And so what we have to do is have a, a biblical foundation for whatever it is we're choosing to do. In scripture, Jesus is king. His kingdom's not of this world. Anything that claims our allegiance is not something we can give allegiance to—at least ultimate allegiance. Uh, we, we—you can make a case. Theologians have made the case. You can give allegiance to someone in up until that conflicts with your faith, but then your faith has to take, uh, has to be of pride of place, and that's fine. That's a discussion that Christians. Can, can have and and there's I don't want to be dogmatic about it. I'm just telling you where I came from on that one particular issue as an example. For other people, it would be things like serving in the military. For other people, it would be things like um, paying taxes that they know are going to go towards things that they like completely disagree with. For other people, uh, it, just number voting itself for some people is an act of where they see that as using force against other people through their vote, and they can't do it in a good conscience. Cool. As long as we have a grounded view, then then our ethic will. It's a, it, let me say it this way: As long as our ethic is grounded in a biblical, a truly biblical worldview, then it's a solid ethic, even if it's not the same as another Christian's ethic. Christians are allowed to differ. I have a great friend. He posted today why he's voting for Trump. I love what he does. I love his ministry. I love him as a brother. And I shared on this post, I said, hey, listen, I disagree with, he he made some points. And I said, I disagree with this point. And this is why. But I love the fact that our fellowship as Christians is not contingent on agreeing politically. And I support you till the day I die on kingdom issues. And that's what I think we have to embrace as Christians. We have to model loving across lines. And I don't just mean partisan political lines. I mean, we have to model reaching across any line that divides us. That doesn't mean we agree, but we have to reach across and say, I don't agree, but I do love you. I don't agree with what you're saying, but I care about you, and I want you to be able, or at least to feel able, to say what you believe freely and to give me the same courtesy. This is why I think cancel culture is another abomination. The idea that just shouting somebody down, not letting somebody speak, um, I, just in general, I think it's horrible policy. And I know some people disagree. I, I could, in my head picture, who's going to pop up and say, I disagree. You know, Some people need to be shouted down. You wouldn't let a Nazi speak. and uh, Cool, fine. Um, in general, though. I stand by that, that it is much better on the whole to have a society where everyone has the freedom and the ability to say what they believe without being forcibly silenced than the contrary. Just that's hot take. Um, I want to end by talking about the concept. We're kind of going around a little bit, but again, today's a crazy day and I don't know when people are jumping in on this. Um, I, Gordon, I see your question. Gordon just asked about, do you feel like the Pledge of Allegiance is an ultimate allegiance? Is there a place to understand the context of a pledge as a sub-allegiance to a particular country over other countries? And yes, I, I see your question and I actually do agree. I think you could, if heavily qualified, somebody in good conscience could say the Pledge of Allegiance I, it just takes so much qualification that to me it's not worth it. There, there, there's no bonus, there's no plus to doing it. I don't see it as being an intrinsically good thing. So the fact that you could possibly say a pledge in a way that you're saying, well, what I mean by allegiance is limited allegiance insofar as it doesn't conflict with my kingdom allegiance, yeah, I think you can do that. I just don't want to, I don't think it's worth it. Um, it's not an area that I feel is important enough to do that. Um, that will be a good discussion for another time. Maybe when we talk about things like flag burning and kneeling during the national anthem, the Bible gives, uh, one of my favorite books to teach is the book of revelation. And we have a whole course at disciple dojo. It's absolutely free. It's called revelation, a guided tour of the apocalypse. There we go. That's backwards. Uh, you'd have to flip this around to really see the cover. But in our in our series, or our, it's a video study that goes through the whole book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation is the most anti-imperialistic book in the Bible, by far. And the book of Revelation is also the only book in the Bible that was directly given as a vision, as a literary thing, from the risen Jesus. I call Revelation the fifth gospel. Because the book is the revelation of Jesus. That's the title of the book. And the book is a vision that Jesus gave John. So if you read the beginning of this book, Jesus through his angel gives John a vision, an apocalyptic vision of of all of human history, of, of the cosmos. And, The whole book is is a revealing. That's why it's called revelation. It comes from a verb that means to lift the veil. The the whole book is a revealing of who Jesus truly is and what the kingdom of God is truly like. And in doing so, it also reveals what the kingdoms of this world are truly like. And in the context that it was written, it was written to Christians in seven churches throughout Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And who are in the heartland of um, make Rome great again country. Like they were in the heartland of flag waving, incense burning, temple attending, emperor worshiping country. They were at the epicenter of Roman patriotism outside of possibly the city of Rome herself. Asia Minor was like the hotbed. Asia Minor was where the concept of emperor worship came from in the first place. It wasn't like the emperors up until Nero. The emperors weren't saying, hey, we're divine, worship us. The people in the provinces were wanting to show their devotion to the emperors, and they were the ones who declared the emperors divine, who built temples that honored and worshipped the emperor as divine, Who called the emperors things like Lord and Savior, who gave them these titles? So that all came like from this groundswell of patriotism throughout the Roman Empire. That's where the whole emperor worship concept came from. It was it was nationalism on steroids. And let me I'm going to read a section. This is from a book called Reading Revelation Responsibly by Michael Gorman. And it's, it's a fantastic, I mean, there are a lot of good books on revelation. I have a whole, like that whole shelf is all revelation books, but this one in particular, I use when I teach this course, I encourage people to read it because what Gorman does is he talks about, he sets the concept, he sets the book of revelation within its first century context. And he's talks about things like nationalism and how it was manifest in Rome because If we understand how things were manifest in the time when Scripture was written, in the context that Scripture was written, then we can look at our context today and say, now what are the similarities and what are the differences and how does what Scripture says to them in their situation reflect what it would say to us in our situation? And this is called exegesis. This is Bible interpretation. This is pulling the meaning out of scripture and then applying it to our settings today. Gorman says he has a section on American theology and civil religion in the 21st century. And uh, just one of the excerpts, I'll read it real quick because it's such a great quote. He says, nationalism, as I am using it here, is extreme devotion to one's country as, quote, the greatest nation on earth and therefore worthy of nearly unqualified, and sometimes thoroughly unqualified, allegiance. This devotion is often based on the conviction that the nation is chosen, blessed, and commissioned by God, its power and wealth being signs of God's approval. The U.S. is one nation under God, thus devotion to one's country, and its mission in the world is ultimately a religious devotion. So he's talking about nationalism. In that, what nationalism does is it, it it sees the country as an extension of what God's doing in the world, and therefore, to support the country is to be on the side of God because we're one nation under God. And so, it merges our political identity, our national ethnic uh, uh, not ethnic, our national civil identity, with our kingdom identity. And and therefore, the two become intertwined. And so you'll have presidents referring to America as, say, a city on a hill. Well, America is not a city on a hill. That is a reference to biblical Jerusalem, not to America. And so we have to be careful because what nationalism does, and Christian nationalism is so insidious... Because it takes these thoughts and these categories and these concepts that are good, and it weds them to a secular, worldly, political entity known as the United States of America. Super dangerous. Incredibly insidious to do that. Not just with America, with any country. Gorman goes on to say, the syncretism, and that means mixing of religion. Syncretism is when you kind of, you know, like people are new agey, so they'll post pictures of tarot cards, but then they'll post like a a Hindu Sanskrit poem, and then they'll post something about a crystal, and they're just kind of blending all this spirituality together. That's syncretism. Um, So what Gorman says is, the syncretism of Rome's civil religion involved the blending of Roman ideology and pagan religiosity. So Rome For first century Christians, Rome took pagan religious practices like worship of Jupiter, worship of Venus, worship of, you know, uh, any of the gods, Bacchus or any of whatever God in the pagan pantheon and melded that, merged that with allegiance to Rome. So Rome became Jupiter's vehicle on earth for spreading Pax Romana and goodness and peace and, you know, blessings and all this stuff, whatever. So, so. Rome civil religion took pagan Roman ideology, Roman political military ideology and blended it with pagan religiosity. Gorman says, "But the syncretism of American civil religion involves the blending of American ideology, land of the free, home of the brave, uh you know, democracy for all, these these earthly political concepts. It the, the blendings of American ideology and Christian, or at least theistic, quasi-Christian, religiosity. So taking things like Bible, God and country, uh, you seeing memes or Instagram influencer accounts of girls in like tight jeans and yoga pants holding a AR-15 and a Bible with an American flag in the background. Pure syncretism. Um, you know, images of, of Donald Trump standing holding an American flag with Jesus with his arms on his shoulders, like, yeah, I'm on your team too total syncretism. Uh, That's what the American, that's what we as Christians in America are experiencing. Not the blending of pagan religious symbols with Roman imperialism, but the blending of Christian symbols with American exceptionalism. That's our syncretism that we face. So the early church, he says, the early church had a natural suspicion of Roman civil religion because it was so blatantly pagan and idolatrous, though even it could be appealing. Contemporary Christians can much more easily assume that Christian or quasi-Christian ideas, language, and practices are benign or even divinely sanctioned. This makes American civil religion all the more attractive, that is, all the more seductive and dangerous. Its fundamentally pagan character is masked by its Christian veneer. This is the danger I see in American politics. On this election day, people will tell you that eternal spiritual things are weighing in the balance based on which political secular leader you choose. People will tell you that God gave them a vision of which leader is his anointed one and who he has brought for such a day as this into power. But if the other person wins, they would never say that about them. They would say we have to get through, we have to weather this storm, we're 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 the, the remnant in the face of oppression. But if their team wins, this is God, his righteous candidate that he's raised up from blah blah blah. I mean, it, it just makes me want to vomit. It is taking it it's it's so pagan, but it takes it it insidiously unbaptizes Christian symbolism in applying it to a secular leader or a political party. And that more than anything is what I am constantly sensitive to in American politics. And I encourage other Bible-believing, evangelical, Jesus-loving, spirit-filled, baptized in the blood, Christian believers to have that same amount of skepticism to any earthly power, any earthly institution, any earthly political party, any earthly candidate that would dare to mix their agenda into the kingdom of God and present it as stand with me, you're standing with God. It's blatant idolatry, absolutely blatant idolatry. And so what Gorman goes on to say in Revelation, um, reading Revelation Responsibly, he says, Revelation is a sustained stripping of the sacred from secular power military, political, economic, and a parallel sustained recognition of God and the Lamb as the rightful bearers of sacred claims, the only worthy recipients of divine accolades. It proclaims that there exists a non-civil religion, that there can be a community of uncivil people, and what he means is people outside of the, the, the civic apparatus of the Roman Empire. Thus, one of the main purposes of Revelation is to challenge sacralized imperial power and its seductive allure with an alternative vision of power that will give believers comfort, assurance, hope, and especially courage to resist in accord with the paradigm of Jesus. The alternative vision of power is the power of the one true God and the slain Lamb, Christ the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and ruler of the kings of the earth. Quoting from chapter 1, verse 5. So, he goes on to say, Revelation provides for the church a set of Christian prophetic counter-images and a counter-imperial script. Therefore, Revelation is a prophetic, pastoral, visionary guide to worshiping and following the Lamb a template for faithful witness against civil religion and for true worship of the true God. It calls us to unlearn and abandon the false but often seductive gospel of empire and civil religion as it calls us to learn and practice in worship and witness the truth of the Lamb's eternal gospel. I, That passage alone was why I made Gorman's book the required reading for my Revelation course. Um, I think he absolutely nails it. I think he crushes it on this one. I think he's absolutely right. Revelation is a sustained critique of secular power claiming ultimate authority. That's the message of Revelation. It didn't have anything to do with barcodes, credit card chips, wars in the Middle East, none of that stuff. Revelation is a sustained critique of secular alluring worldly might and majesty and wealth and influence that would claim the allegiance of its people? Revelation critiques that and says, no, you want to know what Rome really is? Rome who presents herself as the goddess Roma, the noble, virtuous woman of wisdom seated atop seven hills over an eternal kingdom. You want to know what Rome really is? And Revelation pulls back the veil and says, You see that drunken, gluttonous, out-of-her-mind prostitute riding on a beast, devouring God's people? You see that image? That's Rome. That's what imperial power really is. In the eyes of the world, it's everything we should aspire to. The Pax Romana is peace on the earth, the will of the gods. But through the eyes of the gospel, it's the complete antithesis of that. So when I read Revelation and its critique of Rome, what I ask myself as a Christian, as a voter, as a member of of this country, is I say, in what ways is America like Rome? And in what ways is America different? In the ways that America is like Rome, the critiques of Revelation are going to apply to America. In the ways that it's different, We can thank God and we can work to expand those ways that it's different. But we should never give in to the idea that the faults, the pseudo, the idolatry, that America is God's nation. And our allegiance to America or even to a particular vision of America as a political party has any standing or has any bearing whatsoever on our standing in the kingdom of God. Because just like Rome, read Revelation 18. We won't go into it now because we've gone over time, but read Revelation chapter 18 sometimes with a good commentary by your side so you can understand what the images are meant to represent because Revelation is like a big political cartoon in that all of these images stand for different realities. But read it sometime, chapter 18, and you'll see what God truly thinks about any empire that's... Comes in the likeness of Rome, and then we have to ask ourselves, could that be us? Could that be America? Could it be China? could it be Russia? Could it be Israel? Could it be Palestine? Could it be Brazil? could it be any We have to ask ourselves what could are our country's continuing manifestations of this spirit of this age, of the powers and principalities of this world that we are called to be at war against. In how far has our country emulated those versus emulating the lamb? So on this election day, donkey, elephant, who cares? Follow the lamb. Follow the lamb. Because that's the king, that's the party that wins in the end. That's the political um reality that this that the new creation is headed towards doesn't mean don't vote it doesn't mean don't care about it no care about it be passionate about it but focus on issues not on parties identity focus on issues not on individual charisma or um uh allegiance to or tribal group think focus on issues be willing to be countercultural. On both sides, because neither refla- neither the donkey nor the elephant is a mirror image of the lamb. So let's hold both accountable, however we can. I'm going to show you some resources, because I promised that in the description to this, that will help you, hopefully help you as you navigate your own uh, political social worldviews. The first one on Revelation, i mentioned it before. It go to disciple dot org slash revelation. And the course is entirely free. It's a video course. The first few sessions are me uh doing like a preparatory um get laying the groundwork and then we switch to where uh live sessions where it was actually filmed at a church. Um that's why the audio-video quality, it's, it's, gonna, it's about 10 years old, so it'll look about 10 years old. But that is a course for understanding revelation and the implications that it has in shaping our worldview. There's a couple of other resources that I'm going to recommend that you can take notes of. Russell Moore, probably my favorite Southern Baptist, he wrote this book called Onward, um, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel, And it actually has a DVD study as well. It's put out by Lifeway. This is one of the best books I've ever read on being a Christian in our current politically divided culture. Can't recommend this highly enough. Get a copy of this book. If you work at a church, if you have access to a church um, library or something, get them a copy of the DVD study and do it as a small group there's also a participants guide it comes with a whole uh, small group kit but i can't recommend that strongly enough richard bacham has written what i think is the best book ever written on the bible and politics how the bible actually uh, fits into our political views Uh, The Bible in Politics, How to Read the Bible Politically by Richard Blockham. He's a British scholar, New Testament scholar. It's absolutely fantastic. Another one, my second favorite Baptist. So Russell Moore is my favorite Baptist. My second favorite Baptist is Ed Stetzer. And Ed wrote this book, Christians in an Age of Outrage, How to Bring Our Best When the World is at Its Worst. Probably not a more timely book that you could read than this one right now. Um, It's absolutely wonderful, Christians in an Age of Outrage. He talks about things like social media and engagement like that. Basically what we were talking about at the beginning of this, excellent book. And then lastly, in this current culture that we're in, uh, my friend Esau McCullough, Esau and I went to Gordon-Conwell together. Uh, I think uh, with my second year was his first year, but we were, we were buddies uh, on campus back in the 5th and Hall days. And Esau has gone on to become a pretty much a rock star in the Anglican uh, world, well, actually in the world in general, but his book, Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. If you're a Christian and you're skeptical about the whole Black Lives Matter, Marxism, LGBTQ agenda, all those kind of things that you hear about Black Lives Matter, but you also know that you want to be able to support and understand and relate to your Black brothers and sisters in Christ, then Esau's book should be your first—the uh, first thing you pick up. Uh, I mean, you can read all the other anti-racist stuff out there and and uh, white fragility and those kind of books, and you you'll learn some stuff from them. But in terms of biblical truth, from an unapologetically Black orthodox perspective can't recommend Esau's book highly enough it's a fantastic book so those are the resources that I would recommend Um, just continue to grow continue to explore continue to expand continue to um, seek out voices that differ from your own and in that In our discussion, in our ability to communicate, and in our our sharing and engaging the culture, uh, politically and sociologically, uh, just remember to follow the Lamb in both our demeanor, in our grace, and in our hope for what happens. Because tonight, there are going to be a lot of people in this country that are going to think it's the end of the world no matter who wins that's all i can i can assure you that that will be the case and um we as christians especially need to actively resist that doomsday scenario mindset and we need to promote the countercultural eternal kingdom of the lamb because that one's going to outlast that long after the eagle is gone the lamb will still be here So, guys, it was a long chat today, but uh, hopefully you were able to find something of use in this and uh, go vote. Do your civic duty. Um, Vote, if you haven't already, with discernment and show grace to people on the other side, whichever your side is. See you next week.